This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. That's fucking rad. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. It's time for the toughest podcast in the freaking world. That's right, time for the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro, joined as always by my good friend Chris Sinzak. What's up, brother? Good, good to see you. Let's see you uh, gotten out of the triage unit. Man, that was some rough shit that I was going through, but I'm okay. I'm doing, I'm doing pretty much better. I think I'm like 99%, but I think what we've got going on here today yeah. is going to raise me up and make me more than healthy, beyond healthy. This is a big week for you. This is pretty damn awesome, you know. <laughs> When the concept of Albums Unleashed first came up, you know, immediately I'm thinking about, wow, what are some of my favorite albums that would just be amazing to do an Albums Unleashed with? Mm -hmm. And I know you've got a personal list, you know, of ones that are really ones that you really want to get. Oh, speaking of that, uh, Juice said she'd be on in about a month. Yeah, month? All right, cool. All right. All right, so what I'm saying is, you know, on my list are many, many albums that I'd love to do one on, but today I get to knock one off the list, man. I'm really excited for it. We're doing a whole Cheeseheads with Attitude anthology today. We're going to go from straight out of Wisconsin all the way through the Wedge of Allegiance. That is not true. Don't turn it off. But yeah, I'm super excited because this is one of those albums, man. Tufts. What comes around goes around from 1991. Mm-hmm. We've got an awesome guest today. Stevie Rochelle himself is coming on the show, and he's going to tell us all about this album. And man, am I stoked. Absolutely. It's going to be a fun one. So, um, yeah, and it's nice to have you doing the intro again because, you yeah, know, I, I thought I mean, you did I, pretty good. I did okay. Although I think I probably should have just used that robot voice that I used that one week. <laughs> 
But no, it, it did it turned out okay. And uh, you know, Henning coming on the show had great picks for Radio Sucks show. Yeah, uh, one of the most eclectic saying. episodes we've ever done. Eclectic is definitely the word for it. But yeah, had good feedback on it. People really liked it. So that dude's uh, got a great personality. Yeah. you know, and it, and these shows we've been doing where we've have been having guests come on the show with us. You mm-hmm. know, everybody that stepped up so far, and the, including the one we've already got recorded that you guys are going to be getting next week. <laughs> All these guys have stepped up and have all been amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, they've so, all been fun to kudos do. Kudos to them. Yeah, next week's one's going to... Uh, that gets a little wild. <laughs> <laughs> Very fun to do. That's a, that's a warning. But yeah, Henning was great and uh, looking forward to meeting him at the Ro- Nashville Rock and Pod Expo. He's coming into town in August for that. Yeah, so you guys know all about that, you know, and that's part of the reason why we did what we did last week and what we're doing this next week and what we did a couple of weeks back with Sonny Pooney. It's all good, man, for the Rock and Pod Expo, you know. Mm-hmm. You guys get in on the action. Keep those donations coming. If you've already donated, go tell somebody else yeah. about it so that they can donate. And to if it. you haven't, and like you're like, oh, I can't, I can't make a big dent in what they need. Donate a dollar. Donate two dollars. If enough sure. people do it, we can hit our goal in no time. Heck know? yeah, man, that'd be great. All right, we got to get to the business. Yeah. I can't wait any longer. So before we get into our talk with my cheesehead homeboy Stevie Rochelle, I want to let you know that guess what? We got another one. A five-star iTunes review. It's beautiful. Look at them right there. One, two, three, four, five. And it's entitled, All for the Love of Rock and Roll. And it goes a little something like this. I connected with the Decibel Geeks on many levels. Because much like myself, they are just normal guys that grew up on and love hard rock and metal music. What is better than being able to share your memories and discuss your love of rock and music? They explore the past as well as help keep you informed about newer bands and some of our favorite older bands with new, with new music out. They wave the flag of real rock and keep the torch alive. Do yourself a favor and subscribe and download some great entertaining rock and roll insight. Man. That's nice. perfect right there. I appreciate my mom writing that review for us. She really did a good one right there. I love it. That comes to us from SD2044. Yeah. And it's uh, from here in the United States. We love it. It's perfect. That's Like I said, when people look at these iTunes reviews and they're looking for a new home for their brains while they're at work, you know, and they love hard rock mm-hmm. music, you know, and they need something to help them get through the day, yeah. you're helping them turn them on to this. And, you know, who knows? They might end up donating to the Rock and Pot Expo. Yeah, well, you know, if you want to be the gateway to get people into our show... Leaving an iTunes review is a good way to do it. Heck yeah. Because a lot of people read those reviews before they even decide to hit download once. And otherwise, just get out there and tell people about it. Because yeah. you're going to be the cool guy that turned them on to the Decibel Geek podcast. No matter where you're at, go to the bank, go to the grocery store. Hey, you need to listen to this podcast. Nobody <laughs> say, stay away from us, sir. Just stand out in front just of the grocery store. Just give us a semen sample. We don't need to know about that. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, we talked about it a little bit earlier. We had a lot of great response last week's episode with Henning. Yeah. Man, he was cool. A lot of fun. Called mm-hmm. us all the way from Germany. We're looking forward to seeing him at the Rock and Pod Expo. And a lot of people dug the show. Eclectic? Yeah, it definitely, definitely. was. So, yeah, so our next favorite people are Geeks of the Week. These are the people that shared on Facebook, retweeted on Twitter that episode. And Geeks of the Week this week are Todd Cunningham, Mike Grabowski, Joe Royland, Sit and Spin with Joe, Greg York, Mark Alden-Taylor, Brent Walter, Kevin Williams, Dan Chapu. Joseph P. Capone, Greg McGlone, Andrew Jacobs, Wayne Cross, Scott Smith, Steve Yakin, Rob Webb, Hoops, Adam Cox, Stephen Newton, Sean Cullen, Warren Money, Mikhail Burrell, Doug the Devil, Christopher Stokes, Roy Randolph, Stephen Atchison, Derek Novak, David Glenn, The Rockin' Donkey, Ernesto Aguiar, Sonny Pooney, and The Mooger Fooger. 
Heck yeah, those are our people out there. That's what they're doing. They're spreading the word of rock and roll, and they're spreading the word of the Decibel Geek Podcast. We appreciate each and every person that does that. And if you take this week's episode, Albums Unleashed on Tufts, What Comes Around Goes Around, and you share it next week, we're going to share your name on the show before we kick off next week's episode, which, like we said, is going to be insane, and you've been warned. (laughs) All right, we ready to do this? I'm ready to rock and roll, man. I'm so excited. Here it is, Albums Unleashed, Stevie Rochelle, What Comes Around Goes Around. I was a big, big fan of skateboarding and growing up in Wisconsin, of all places, it's kind of an odd place to become a skateboarder. But I was, and that started in like the, probably the early mid seventies before I was 10 years old, I was skateboarding. And by the time I was 12 or 13, we had already graduated to building ramps and quarter pipes and half pipes and, you know, having those kind of, uh, next level, uh, things going on. It wasn't like we were just like, Hey, let me sidewalk surf down the street. We were, we were building big ramps with vert and drop-ins and, and so, my my music exposure by doing that was all punk and new wave and all the stuff that skaters were listening to. The Clash, Devo, the Boomtown Rats, 999, the Surf Punks, I guess at one point Black Flag, JFA, all that kind of stuff. All bands that you would associate with Tough. Yeah, well, <laughs> not really. But uh, so, you know, at one point... Late in high school, like late junior year, going into my senior year, a lot of my friends were listening to Loverboy, Def Leppard's Pyromania had come out. It was all over the radio. You know, a bunch of fans were into Ozzy and Rush and Quiet Riot. And I think Twisted Sister was starting to become, you know, those heavy metal bands that were getting played on MTV more. But I was still into my Billy Idol and and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, at one point, my friends, you know, some of us skateboarded, some of us rode BMX bikes, but there was also a couple of guys that had a guitar and a guy that had a drum set. These guys were starting to go like, hey, we're going to Dan's house on Saturday. We're going to jam in his basement or so-and-so's garage. I started hanging around with some of those people more, you know, going to these garage jams and stuff, and people were playing Judas Priest songs. And I didn't really know a lot about those bands. But when they started playing Living After Midnight, I was like, oh, yeah, I know this song. I've heard it on WAPL, which was the local rock station in Appleton. Yeah. And then um, I remember there was a local concert promoter that was selling tickets to Ozzy. And the opening act was Motley Crue, which I didn't know that at the time. But my friend said they were going to go to Ozzy. And there's only, there's only one thing that I knew about Ozzy. What do you think that was? That he bit the head off a bat. That he eats bats, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's the guy that eats bats. Cool, I'll go. And the concert ticket was like 10 bucks or 12 bucks. You know, something just really, I mean, looking back, that's insane. Right. But um, so I, I agreed to go to, to see Ozzy with my friends. And Motley Crue was the opener. Now, this is in March of 84. And um, I was a senior in high school. And so I went to that concert, just going to see the guy eat bats or whatever. I, 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 I probably didn't know a, a single Ozzy song. Wow. I mean, if somebody would have asked me what band he was in before, at that point, I probably wouldn't have been able to answer it. I probably wouldn't have known it was Black Sabbath. I was not a metal guy at all. I knew nothing about it. 
But when Motley Crue came out and took the stage and I saw Nikki Six and Tommy Lee and Vince Neil and Mick Mars in their Shout at the Devil era gala, get up, clothing, screaming red hot and looks that kill. And I became obsessed instantly. <laughs> the next day I went home and I, I wanted to be in Motley Crue or, or whatever so bad. You know, and then um, a few months later, Van Halen came. Now, I knew who Van Halen was. It was the guy that played the guitar with the, you know, the, the electrician's tape all over it. And the singer was that guy that could jump and do the splits off the drum riser. But again, if you would have said list five Van Halen songs, I probably would have maybe known they did You Really Got Me and didn't even really probably know it was a cover song at that point, you know. Mm. But I went to that show and I was re-blown away by Van Halen with David Lee Roth. And then, you know, then shortly after that was Rat. And then I would just became obsessed, you know, like beyond obsessed. I was buying Helix and Black and Blue and Crocus and Wasp and any record that looked remotely like what Motley Crue at some point became in my head. That was like my fucking calling from from there from then on forward on a daily basis that's all i did is consumed heavy metal and hard rock and whatever you want to call it you know did all of your punk rock skater friends think what the hell's wrong with stevie no i don't remember that i don't remember any because i still skated yeah. i just decided that i wasn't getting haircuts anymore and my hair started getting longer and went to more concerts skaters are pretty cool people and open-minded and so whether you had long hair or short hair, or if you had a mohawk, if you could skate, there was respect, <laughs> you know? So, but anyways, you know, soon after that, those garage jams turned into me getting on the microphone. Then I started playing in a couple local bands. The, the main one was Exciter. We played some shows. Uh, we got in the WAPL Battle of the Bands. We won like the teen round. Then we went to the next round. And, and I say teen round, because at this point I was probably 19 mm -hmm. and a couple of the guys weren't even at age, maybe like 17 years old. We were playing bars. One, at one point, I think our drummer was 16. We didn't want to follow in the footsteps of being a Wisconsin bar band, yeah. you know, and, uh, and there's bands that got trapped in that before. And there's bands that get trapped in that now yeah. that they, they cater to the bar circuit to learn 50 songs and play, you know, three sets of covers and even though there was some talented guys that played in some of those bands, they just got locked in and they started playing three or four nights a week at all these circuit bars from one end of Wisconsin to the other. I played around there for probably two years, maybe a little bit more. I was determined at that point that I, I knew that I wasn't staying there beyond a certain point, even though I grew up there and lived pretty much my whole life there at that point. I was saying to myself, well, if I wanted to become a pro surfer, I wouldn't stay in Wisconsin. I'd go to Hawaii. You know, right. if I was going to be going the rodeo, I'd move to Texas or, you know, but if I'm going to be in a rock band that's going to pursue what Van Halen and Motley Crue have done, it ain't in fucking Nina. <laughs> it's not in fucking Kakana, you know, and it ain't even in Milwaukee. No. So I, I, I was limited as to what I, got involved as far as playing. And when we did play, we played, we played half originals and we didn't always like, Hey, we, we, but we want you to play 38 special in the set. It's just like, I like 38 special, but fuck it. We're not playing 38 <laughs> special. Okay. We're only playing 
what we want to play. So that at some point developed into, you know, in my head that I was like, okay, I got to get out of here. If I want to, if I want to piss with the big dogs, I got to get off the porch. And so in June of 87, I, I bought a one-way ticket to California. Man. So just you on your own, the whole band didn't go? No. At that point, I'd already went through a couple of band lineups and all, all good guys, all guys that did their own thing. But I remember I wanted to play more shows in Milwaukee or Chicago. And there was a guy at some point that was like, well, you know, I've got to study for college or my girlfriend's sister's wedding. And I got to go to be the best man. And people were doing all this other stuff in life that I, I thought at the time, granted, I was 19 or 20. We all were. Fuck that. We're in a band. We got shit to do. We got flyers to make. We got girls to fuck. We got songs to rehearse. Like I was obsessed with being in the band. So when somebody said I had to get, get a haircut for a wedding or I had to go to my niece's graduation party and I couldn't make rehearsal or couldn't do a show on a specific weekend because of something else like that was going on, that was like interfering with, you know, what I thought the band should be doing. Right. So when, you know, when, when it was time for me to go, it was me going to find, you know, these guys in the band tough. I wasn't bringing any baggage with me. How much money do you move to LA on? Less than 200 bucks, maybe a hundred and maybe 150 bucks in my pocket. But I had, I had a friend, a girl that I knew that was from Milwaukee that lived up in Van Nuys. And I ended up staying with her at least for the first couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. There was basically some unknown. Like, for all I know, she could have got pissed and kicked me out a month later, and I could have been homeless. But, you know, I met the band within a week of being there. I reached out to them. See, as, as you guys might know, or some of the fans might know, Tough was already an established band for a couple of years, meaning right. they were already together. Yep. Originally from Phoenix, had played the Phoenix scene for a year or two, and they had moved to L.A., in the fall of 86 with Jim Gillette as their singer. And they played four shows with Jimmy in LA In the fall of 86, they played, I believe the country club. They played the troubadour. They might've played the Roxy. And then the last show they ever played with Jim was in May of 87 at Gazzari's. Mm-hmm. And he left the band because he wanted to do a more heavy band, uh, more screaming, more fast guitars, and um, they didn't want that. They wanted to stick to the party rock kind of thing that they were doing. And so basically Jim left the band, which left tough with no singer. So they started advertising sometime around just after he had quit the band that they were looking for a singer. And a friend of mine from Wisconsin had visited LA for a couple of weeks on a trip and then came home with a bunch of flyers, magazines, and in, in that stack of stuff he brought home was a tough flyer that said wanted lead singer. And it was like a picture of Todd, a picture of Michael, a picture of George. And then an empty square said, you know, wanted lead singer, David Lee Roth, Vince Neil, Brett Michaels. And I saw that and I was like, hey, that's me. <laughs> you know? So what, how was the first meeting with the band? Well, when I got here, I, I, I started staying with that girl. I met some neighbors. They got me a job at a phone sales place, you know? So it was like, I don't know, three or four days I was maybe there, but I called this number to audition when I still lived in Wisconsin. Like I called this number and it wasn't even the band's phone number. Cause at the time they had like, they had no phone. And so they, they had a, a rehearsal studio number that was left. So when I called it, it was a studio 
called Rocking Horse Studios in Canoga Park. And they said, you know, I, I said, hey, I'm, I'm calling about the tough audition. And they said, well, you need to send a press package with your headshot and your demo tape and your bio and all this stuff that to me sounded really professional, really legit. Like I didn't have real headshots or a bio or, you know, I had a demo, but, and I'm from Oshkosh. And so they said, you have to mail your stuff here and we'll give it to the band. And so I thought about that. And then I thought, you know, I have some tapes, I have some pictures, but it's just, it's not really professionally done. And I'm like, I don't want, I don't want to send it and then have them just base it off of what they see in these you know, fuck. I mean, fuck. Some of the photos might have been Polaroids, you know? I mean, yeah. this is this is 30 years ago. So I'm like, I don't want to miss out on this if if it's based on this shitty representation of what I think I really am. Yeah. So within a couple of within a couple of days, and when I say a couple of days, within like 48 hours, I had made the decision that I was just going to move there. And so I lived at that time in an apartment. I rented a room from some girls and then uh I had a couple jobs. Like I worked at a grocery store as like a night stock boy. Um, I, I don't remember if I still, I think I worked at a waterbed factory for part, maybe at that time, wow. but I, I had two different jobs in a car and I lived in an apartment, but I, I decided literally almost overnight. Okay. I'm quitting my jobs. I'm moving all my shit back to my mom's house, put it in the basement, park my car in the garage and buy a one way ticket to California. And that's exactly what I did. And within 48 hours of getting the flyer, I made the decision. I got the flyer on a Friday, just to put things into perspective. I got the flyer on a Friday. On Monday, over the weekend, on Saturday and Sunday, I decided to start to move some of the stuff because I didn't have a lot. I was basically renting a room. Mm-hmm. Decided to move my stuff back to my mom's. On Monday, I bought the flight for that Thursday. So Thursday, the following week of getting the flyer, six days later, I flew here. And then the girl that I was was staying with took me with her friends to the troubadour on that first friday night and i saw angora which was john karabi's band and i met him and a bunch of those guys that night and like she was just like this is my friend steve he's from wisconsin he's coming out here because he's gonna audition for a band and blah 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 and so then i think it was like over the weekend i called that same studio and i said hey this is steve from wisconsin i called like a couple of weeks a week and a half ago or whatever eight days ago about this audition for tough. Can you let them know I'm in California? And they're like, well, did you send us a package? And I'm like, no, I never sent a package, but I'm in California. This is where I'm at. This is my phone number. And so then it was a couple days after that, Michael had called me, Michael, the drummer. And <laughs> I just remember one of the, the first things he asked me, the most important question, what do you think it was? How long is your hair? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, how how long is your hair? You yeah. know? And oh, then he said, course. what do you look like? And I said, well, everybody says I look like the guy from Poison, which at this point, Poison had already started to get really big. Yeah. Yeah. But I had been, you know, uh, David Lee Roth or a Vince Neil wannabe is what I thought I was for a couple of years. And, well, and then as Poison crazy. became huge, everybody's like, you look like the guy from Poison. I'm like, yeah, yeah I know. I've been fucking hearing that ever since their song got on the radio. <laughs> but, I mean, it wasn't a bad thing because it's not like they were saying I was, I look like fucking, you look you know. like the singer from Grim Reaper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, I meet Tough. 
we have a match made in heaven. We hung out for a day or two. I rehearsed with them. And honestly, if I do remember right, they didn't tell me I had the gig after the first rehearsal because the first rehearsal really wasn't like a rehearsal. It was kind of like, I remember they invited me, but like Jim Gillette was there and another guy was there that was singing with them that was supposedly going to be their new singer. But the, the guy didn't work out. And then I remember Jimmy was there and then he got up and sang some songs with them. And I was just there kind of like meeting them. I'd already met them, but I kind of like was just watching and hanging out with some girls or something. <laughs> it was, it was kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Yeah, you know, anyway. they said, Hey, we're going to do a rehearsal with you on Thursday. Like this might've been a Wednesday night or something or, mm-hmm. or the following Sunday or something. And so then, uh, I just kind of had to wait around. And then after I rehearsed, they wanted to have a, they wanted to have a meeting with themselves outside, meaning Todd, George and Michael. So they like had their little meeting and then came in and told me I was their lighting man or something and started laughing, <laughs> which was supposed to be, you know, I was like, yeah, okay. Real funny. But then it was off to the races, you know? Yeah. What tunes did you rehearse with them? It had to be stuff off of their early demos, uh, in that EP they did with Jimmy, which yeah. was like, Dressed for Dancing, Glamour Girls, Forever Yours, Candy Coated. I don't know if you are you guys familiar with some of those songs. Some yeah. Of them, yeah. So at some point, do they give you a cassette or something and say these are the songs you got to learn? Yeah, yeah. Like when I met them, the first night that they came to, to my apartment where I was staying, they came over and they brought you know like they had this fully packaged EP that they had released with Jimmy in 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they had lyric sheets printed out. They're like, you know, work on these. So I started listening to it. And it was, I mean, it sounded like, like Poison or Motley Crue or, you know, I don't want to say Van Halen because it wasn't like Van Halen, but it was very much a party rock kind of vibe. And I played them my tapes too, which I had a couple of demos that were pretty rough compared to theirs. But I think they realized that I was just, it, it's not just, it was a look and a lifestyle and an attitude and a whole, just a whole thing you know, being one of those guys at that point. And I think that, you know, we, we obviously clicked and matched and it worked. Right on. So then where does it take off from there? You guys start playing, you just rehearse and then start playing shows and go from there. Well, I mean, after they said you're in the band, the first thing Michael did was he, he found us uh, the best gig to get, which was opening up for warrant. And technically we weren't the opener. We were like the second slot band, but the show was warrant paradise. Uh, and for anybody that knows, there's two dice or two paradise bands. Paradise, like the dice, dice, not okay. paradise, like the island. So paradise was the support, and then tough was the second slot, and then there was an opener. And in, uh, back in those days, too, a lot of the shows would have a closer. So after Warrant, there was another band that would close the show. But we got on that show, which was August of '87. It was about six weeks after I had joined. So once Michael got got that show lined up we just started promoting it. They made a, we'd made a flyer. We were handing them out, going on the strip. And at this point I'm only in town for a couple of weeks. So this is all brand new to me. And I'm kind of like, Holy shit, there's the whiskey, there's the rainbow, there's Gazaris, there's the Roxy. There's all this stuff within two blocks of each other. I of course didn't know at the time upon arriving and nor did most people that didn't really read up on it, that all that stuff was right next to each other. Right. You know, and then the Troubadour was, you know, down, on Santa Monica, probably a mile and a half away. But those other three or four venues were all within like about a city block of each other. So it was really crazy. 
I was just like, couldn't believe it. You know, like looking back, it was absolutely like a fantasy being on a sunset strip in the summer of 1987, you know, especially coming from Oshkosh. Right. Yeah. Well, he grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up in Nashville. So we both, you know, we were like, we were just like you. We were like, you know, we always dreamed of going there and being, but you actually right. got to go and experience it. It must have been pretty crazy because that's the 87 sure. was the height of all that to stuff. To go from reading about it in the magazines to all of a sudden you're right smack dab in the middle of it. That's got to be mind blowing. Right. No, so after we played the, uh, the Roxy in August, uh, a couple months later in October, early October, we played the Troubadour. Then in November, we played the Whiskey. And, uh, you know, it just, Every, every month and a half or two months, we'd do a show. But then Michael also booked us, like, in Phoenix, where they were from. We did a show in the fall. And then little by little, you know, as we became a bigger name, and we became a pretty big name pretty fast on the Strip, you know, that allowed us to book other places. So soon enough, we were going to San Francisco and Oakland and Fresno and San Diego, and then also playing all kinds of other clubs that were in kind of in the greater LA area, but, you know, within a two or three county area, like there was the Waters Club and Montclair and the Green Door and just all kinds of venues. You know, when, when you became a big band on the Sunset Strip, you suddenly had cachet to, to book yourself in a few other places. Mm-hmm. We also got press pretty quick. Like we were in Kerrang! Magazine by the fall and Metal Forces and getting some of that press, which suddenly gave us a little bit of a, of a launching point, you know, it wasn't, we weren't just one band on the strip. We, we were like suddenly one of the premier bands on the strip. We had had multiple labels that courted us, had meetings, showcases for, you know, labels and producers. And I mean, everybody at some point or another just said, yeah, cool. You guys look great. Oh, you have a lot of girls following you. Awesome. You draw a thousand people, but your songs aren't good enough or there's already a poison. You're not signing another one or, you know, just typical stuff that every band goes through and nobody would, nobody would touch us with a 10 foot pole. So we just had to uh, just keep doing our thing. And, And by this point, by the time we got signed by Atlantic, we had already went on a couple of like technically cross country tours. I mean, we toured, from LA to Phoenix, then we stretched it to Albuquerque, then El Paso, Dallas, and Austin. Then we went uh, to Wisconsin at some point in 88. We did some shows there. Then I thought, well, okay, if we can do Wisconsin, we could probably get Chicago and Minneapolis, and we can get Phoenix and Albuquerque, and we've been to Texas, so now we just need to get the stuff in between. Let's get Omaha, let's get St. Louis, let's get Kansas City. And so we started uh, basically booking tours for like a 10 day period or 20 day period, like three weeks, you know, and playing 15 shows. And, um, some of those actually, most of those we did in the tour bus. So we were getting paid as well, where we had a pretty big, we started to get a little bit of a name where we could get, you know, upwards of $2,000 a night. This is, you know, pre record deal and selling merchandise and, we basically told the band, you know, the crew as well, you know, most of the people that worked for us were younger guys, but we're like, if you guys want to do a tour, we can do it two ways. We can pay you. Everybody can get 150 bucks a week and we can go in a rider truck and take turns driving in a van with a trailer, or we can get a tour bus, but nobody gets paid anything. <laughs> and, and everybody said, we want to go on the tour bus. We're like, cool. We're not paying you anyway. So then, you know, we didn't pay any of our crew. 
And basically everybody got like a $5 per diem, you know, which is enough to buy like a Subway sandwich once a day. But, you know, at that point, I was probably the oldest guy involved. So we're talking the summer of 89. I was 23. Todd and George were 22. Michael was 21. Michael was the youngest. And our crew were like between 16 and 20. So there was like seven, eight, eight guys on a tour bus going across America. And I was the oldest person at 23. And I mean, talk about giving, you know, a bunch of guys a license to kill. It's, <laughs> you know, the stories you read about Motley Crue and Van Halen and all that kind of stuff on the, on the road in the heyday. It's, I'm sure it was insane with that level of success because I know what we did and we were just a little glam rock club band from LA. But the fact that we were, from Hollywood and in a tour bus and doing the things we did and looking the way we looked and, you know, the Motley Crues and the Guns N' Roses and the Poisons were exploding and Skid Row. So we were just like the next in line to be that cool bunch of long haired, perverted, drinking, drugging rock stars coming down the road, you know? Right. Yeah. Sounds more like a pirate ship than a tour bus. Right. So what was it like getting back to Wisconsin and playing in front of your people for the first time? It's funny because we ended up playing, uh, Tough played a couple of shows at the Eagles Club in Oshkosh, which was across from like the YMCA downtown. And I had played there with my previous bands, like with Exciter or Talon or whatever we were called. There was a couple of variations of that band. But it was just bigger and better, you know? I mean, now in this band and got, you know, we're from the West coast and we have this tour bus. So it was, it was absolutely cool, but it wasn't like a, like I've made it, right. you know, even, even though people were saying that like, Oh my God, you've made it, you've made it. I'm like, what has made it? You know, like we, we looked the part and lived the part for a while, but no one ever bought fancy cars or had millions of dollars or bought mansions. We never had any of that, you know? But at that point, you know, anyone that was in their 20s that wanted to become some of what they saw on MTV, whether it was Duran Duran, Loverboy or Motley Crue, we absolutely did achieve some of that status, which it was a good feeling. It was a good feeling knowing what I was thinking from the beginning, from when I first saw Motley Crue. And I do remember thinking to myself, I'm going to do that. Like I, I knew some guys that said they wanted to do it or they dreamt about doing or thought that would be neat if we could do that. But I was like, I'm going to do that. That's awesome. And, it, and at some point I had the perseverance along with the other guys. We were all blinded to the outside world that it was like pretty much us against the world. And so we, we didn't give up. We just kept going until we made it happen, you know? So you guys are plugging away out there for three long years. You're getting some attention from some labels, but nobody ultimately bites on you. Are you feeling any frustration? Are you getting a little nervous that it's not going to happen by the time Atlantic finally does? Well, calling? Y- yes and no, because here's the thing. Looking back at it now, you know, 30 years later at the age of 51, yeah, I mean, you'd think like, well, what were we going to do if it didn't happen? You know, here's the thing. There's a lot of guys that came to the Sunset Strip that were the big fish in their little pond. The coolest band in Denver, the coolest guys in Houston, the fucking raddest band from Memphis. You know, a lot of those guys came to L.A. And a lot of them, after six months or a year or two years or being told you're not good enough or you're not getting signed or your bass player's fat or your singer's this or whatever, the, whatever they were told, a lot of guys did give up. 
A lot of guys went home. A lot of guys went, oh, my dad does have a plumbing business, so I guess I'll just do that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't ever recall us going, well, hey, guys, if this tour doesn't work out, I think I'm going to go back to college. Like, none of us ever thought that. Me, Todd, Michael, and George did not, that did not enter our mind. At least in looking back, that wasn't the thought, you know? And at the, at the same time, by the time we did get signed in 1990, I'm 24 at that point. And again, I'm the oldest guy in the band. So I'm 24 years old and now we achieve it. It's not like it was like, well, hey, I'm 38. Like, you know, <laughs> Mick Mars style. I mean, Mick was obviously much older than the other guys when they got their record deal. Yeah. But we were still very young. I mean, and, and you guys even being 10 years younger than me, mm-hmm. think about what you were doing when you were 24. Oh, God. Think about what your mindset was, where you were at in life when you were 22, 23, 24, mm-hmm. and being able to live here and still tour, go all these places and pictures and magazines. And, and meanwhile, it's not like we were just plugging away by ourselves. At that time, we were opening up for Dangerous Toys, Bullet Boys, Lita Ford, Dokken, Vinnie Vincent Invasion, EZO, Vane, Enough's Enough. I and mean, we played with everybody. We did one-off shows. We went to the East Coast with Britney Fox. I mean, we played big places. We were invited to like TJ Martell, you know, events with famous people and other rock stars. And we were part of that clique. So it's not like we were going, oh my God, we're fucking pieces of shit. Nobody likes us. Like, you know, it's frustrating not being able to get a record deal and, you know, maybe have the Ferraris that Sammy Hagar had, but it wasn't stopping us from doing what we were doing. And we continued to... I guess, live our dreams and other people's dreams. And eventually we did get a record deal and and we did record a a record that came, had a top 10 video and toured in even better buses and got even more press and then went to Europe. And so, you know, those kind of things definitely happened, but it, it didn't turn into Motley Crue, you know, like, well, now we're not triple platinum, we're quadruple platinum, you know? And right. then Poison's second record went five times platinum, and then Guns N' Roses went fucking ten times platinum. Like, we didn't experience that. No. But I also realized pretty early on, and I've talked about this to people in the last 20 years, including the band that I had managed, that Swedish band, Veins of Jenna, which had some success for a point there. Mm-hmm. I'm like, listen everybody doesn't get to be Axl Rose or Fred Durst or Kurt Cobain or Gene Simmons or Jim Morrison or Sebastian Bach. Like everybody doesn't get to be the fucking top dog of their fucking class. So I came to realize that, you know, not everybody can be the headliner. Not everybody can sell 5 million records. And I also kind of at some point said to myself, I don't have to have it all. I don't, I'm not a greedy son of a bitch. I don't want all the spotlight. I don't want the whole pie. I just want a little bit of it. I don't have to be David Lee Roth and sell 50 million records, but to have a little bit of success and have a little bit of a, make, make a little bit of a mark. I'm cool with that. And, and so, you know, we did make a mark, but you know, at the same time, no matter how much you got, it's always, it would always be good to have a little bit more, (laughs) you know? Right. Well, now finally Atlantic comes around. You got the opportunity to at least go in and record an album finally. That's got to feel good. What, what a lot of people don't get is they, they think, oh, my God, you're on Atlantic Records. Oh, my God, you're playing Santa Monica Civic Center. Oh, my God, you're in a tour bus. Oh, my God, look at your video. 
The video is only three minutes and 30 seconds long. The show is only one hour long. That, that record that's in the bin, like unless somebody's standing there and you pick it up and go, hey, guess what? This is me. You should buy this right now. Mm. Hundreds of people walked into a music store every day in 1991, but they went to buy Right Said Fred or they went to buy fucking this Janet Jackson or right. fucking, they didn't care about hair bands or heavy metal or rock and roll. So getting to do that record is a good thing. And it's an experience, you know, but it's also in looking back the, the way that Howard produced us and he sat in our rehearsal room and said, well, let's do this song or that song. And we're like, well, we, this is our greatest song. We're going to play you this one. And then him going, okay, what else? Okay. Well, this is a really good song too. Okay. Well, what else? Like, and so we're playing him literally like 30 songs, you know, like an A list of our top 10 songs and then a B list of our next best 10 songs. And then a next, list of like our best eight or 10 ideas. So at one point, Howard gets to go, okay, well, we're going to work on this. We're going to work on these two. We're going to work on these two. And we're going to work on these three. And we're like, well, what about that one? No, 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 we're not going to work on that one. We're all like, oh my God, you don't like our song. But again, we're young. I don't want to say young and dumb, but I mean, we're just inexperienced at this point, you know, and, and this guy had produced multiple records. And right. so Howard kind of, as a producer, he's kind of like what a coach does, you know, for a football team. It's like, you're definitely the best running back. We're going to give this guy the ball five times every series. And then there's some other running back that goes, but what about me? Can I run the ball? Which is exactly what happens with songwriters. Yeah, well, sure. we like this song and this song and this song, but hold it. Those are all Joe's songs. So what? We're only going to do Joe's songs. How come we can't do my songs? And then there's the there's the little arguments about who wrote what and why they're picking your song and not his. And, and I mean, there's a lot of shit that goes on in being in a band that is not glamorous. <laughs> it's not as exciting as the video. It's not as exciting as the encore when the confetti's blowing and everyone's screaming. And then <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of parts that go with being in that band and making that record or going on that tour mm. that are just not glamorous. It's just, it's a job. Hmm. Well, I'm almost scared to ask you if you want to do the track by track. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> All right, before we get back into our conversation with the man with the second best laugh in rock and roll, beh behind Ace Frehley only. What about Aaron Camaro? I'm three, man. Okay. Stevie, Rochelle, Stevie Rochelle just passed me up, man. I love his laugh. What <laughs> a guy. A yeah, humble, awesome, and we haven't even gotten to the uh, the album tracks yet. This Stevie Rochelle's an awesome interview. Yeah, we got to have him back on for sure. Most definitely. I'm looking forward to it. So before we get back into all our fun we're having today, I want to let you know that... Uh, there's, as always, more cool stuff over at HK Collectibles, Inc. this week, including some killer Alice Cooper tickets from shows on the Constrictor Tour, as well as a ticket from a 1987 Indianapolis show with Alice Cooper, Ace Fraley, and Faster Pussycat. That's wow. A, that's a triple bill. Yeah, it is. Oh, man, I'd love to go see that right now. All that and a ton more, you know it. Just head on over to DecibelGeek.com, click on the HK Collectibles, Inc. banner, and do your shopping... 
because you got to go to decibelgeek.com because when you're doing any kind of online shopping, whether it be whatever you're looking for, you know, and I hope people are hearing this and going, I got to go get this album. Well, a great way to do that is to go to decibelgeek.com, click on our personal Amazon banner. It takes you to Amazon. You go, you find tough. What comes around goes around. There it is. Whether you want it on album, CD, download, cassette tape i'm sure that's on there too you can find anything you want on amazon you order it up you pay whatever price they said you were going to pay and that's it then amazon takes a cut of their action kicks it on over to the decibel geek podcast and it helps us out a lot a lot of people do this for us we love them a lot and we get the list we do get a list and i didn't have a time to really (laughs) do a great job putting it together this week so uh we're gonna we're just going to hit a few of the little highlights real yeah, we're quick. We're looking at the list for the first time right now. Oh, kind of. Um, hey, I got Geeks of the Week together. Give me a break. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just some of the highlights of what was bought this week, if I can now get the damn website to work for me. That's all right, man. You ran the whole show last week. Yeah, no. You just take your time. No rush. No pressure. Can I tell you guys, while Chris is looking at that, <laughs> Please that do. decibelgeek.com <laughs> is an awesome place to go. When you're done listening to this show, head on over there because what you're going to find there is, you know, yeah, we do this podcast. We've been doing it for over six Six years now mm-hmm. and it's a lot of fun and you know we get cool people to come on it with us like stevie rochelle but there's a whole nother big piece to this magic puzzle and that piece is decibelgeek.com because what we've got there is some of the absolute best rock and roll journalists in the world and i i'll stake my reputation on that because these are people that have come in and said you know what i've always wanted to do this i believe in what you guys are doing mm-hmm. i believe in rock and roll and I want to be a journalist. And they did. They went out and they did it. They grabbed their dreams. They're out there interviewing people, doing album reviews. You want to know about the newest music coming out? That's the place to go, decibelgeek.com, because these guys always get the albums before anybody else. The rock stars, the record companies, they want to put their albums in the hands of the Decibel Geek reviewers before the albums come out. Because that way, our writers will do this review weeks before the album comes out then they tell people hey it's good or it sucks you know and that's the gamble that the record company's got to take they got to say hey this album's got to be good if we're going to pass it on to these guys because they're true rock and rollers and they're not going to bs anybody right so when you're reading one of these reviews from one of our many awesome writers you can take it as a fact of what you're getting is the truth so now the album comes out you've been waiting for it for weeks now how many years has it been since you've been really, really excited about an album coming out? Do you remember when we were young and you'd wait at the door at the mall waiting for that album to come out because you've been waiting for months for the new Kiss, for the new Motley Crue, for me, the new Tough? You know, get that feeling again. Let DecibelGeek.com rekindle your love for rock and roll. Are you ready with the list? Sort of. So All I, right. So, so, I, so I'm doing a wrestling show no. tomorrow night. It's, no, it's, it's in it's, Lewisburg, Tennessee. It's, it's good. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna hit on some of the major stuff that was. Oh, somebody. I was gonna say. Speaking of Alice Cooper. Oh yeah. Well, fuck yeah, man. We should do the, that Woo. and the VIP stuff. So if you're a VIP, you'll get to hear the full uh, discussion wow. on the. Alice. I, I still we got saw a, the Alice Cooper original lineup. I still got a buzz on from that. That's you true. know, just the 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 sight and the history of it. You know, was just wow. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, we'll talk about that on VIP for sure. Go on Patreon.com, look for Decibel Geek, and uh, subscribe to that, yeah. and, and you get to uh, hear our whole breakdown of the Alice Cooper show. But that and a whole lot more. Hey, you got that list? Yeah. Well, sort of. <laughs> um, I've got like the general list, but whenever 
whenever I okay. use my phone to click on the link to get the details on it, it just goes blank. So and, here's and blood goes squirting everywhere out of your finger. Yeah, somebody bought like seventy five dollars worth of dog food. That's oh, pretty wow. cool. That's awesome. See, that shows you can you can buy anything. You can. Um, and then some of the music Aerosmith's self titled first album was was bought. Cool. cool. Um, let's see, something called Rock and Roll Hit Machine was bought, but if I click on it, it's going to go blank. Okay, don't do it. Yeah, and then Ultra Mega Okay Two LFP with a download card. Don't know what that is, but thank you. That's uh, Power Man 5000, I oh, think. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars story on Blu-ray was bought. Love Star Wars. Uh, Plantronics cable, assemb- cable Assembly was bought. Somebody's putting cable in their house. Okay, right uh, on. Snap and Store double-wide CD storage box. So right on. People other than Aaron Camaro still buy CDs. Shit, yeah, man. I'm proud of whoever you are. Uh, and then uh, finishing it out, because there's more, but there's finishing it out uh, kind of, uh, you know, timing on this one louder than love on lp was bought by soundgarden Mm, man what a crazy couple of days it's been since finding out that news yeah definitely if there's one thing you can take solace in in all this i'd like to thank chris cornell because Mm -hmm. for one and a half days on facebook i didn't have to see nothing but crazy people bitching about trump i saw people actually still tie it to him it was a break it It was was a break and all that it was i was thinking when it happened like surely no one can tie this to donald trump some people actually did though right yeah but then there's only a matter of time than all of them you know and it's like god you guys are my friends but you're ruining facebook (laughs) for me but i don't want to unfollow you but because someday you might get over this i i I was tempted to put a a status up that but it was going to piss people off where i was going to say something along the lines of um i'm glad that all of my uh lawyer expert friends have suddenly changed to being uh therapist experts right yeah for sure but yeah we want not to piss people off but yeah Yeah, let's probably you know we're decibel geek we should probably just stick with the rock and roll that's what we know best all right so here we go we're gonna wrap things up today this is a lot of fun we want to thank steve rochelle once again for coming on and here it is the rest of albums unleashed right here on the decibel geek podcast with stevie rochelle on 1991's what comes around goes around You know, making the record was great, but it's just different than people think, you know? Well, can you give an example of one or two of the songs that you thought maybe should have made the album that that Howard nixed? No, I I don't. I mean, I I think, especially now more than ever, I think looking back, what he picked is great, you know? But I mean, here's here's an example. When Howard's going to produce our record, he comes into the studio, and I remember one of the first rehearsals he had, a, he had like a clipboard and a piece of paper and a pen. And at one point he said, okay, I want you guys to play a couple songs. And then he went and stood behind Michael and he watched Michael play. And he started from like the ground up, like, Hey, your kick pattern is a little weird in this part. I want you to change it to this. Mm-hmm. And so again, this, you know, to, to a guys that are like, Hey, we have our stage, we have our choreography, here's our backdrop, you know, look at us on this photo shoot. A producer is basically a, a song manager. You know, he's coming in there, and Howard's a genius producer. He's clearly had and went on to have massive success right. in the last 10 or 15 years. Absolutely. But, I mean, he was breaking down the song from, like, bass, drum, snare drum, hi-hat pattern, mm-hmm. you know, explaining where to put a fill, where not to put a fill. Okay, now we're going to have the bass follow that. We're going to do this rhythm. That part's too weird. Let's change it to this. And... I mean, and we're not even at the point where we're talking about the song being fully structured or recorded yet. And then it became about lyrics, you know, and I, I remember writing lyrics for songs and Howard saying, work on these three tonight. And then I'd come back the next day and show him these 
you know, my spiral with all my lyrics for this song or that song. And then he would go over it literally like a teacher with a red pen. And he crossed out like 70% of what I wrote and goes, this is a good word. This is a good sentence. I like, you know, this is a good idea to, to write it about this, what you're saying right here. Let's keep that and build on it. And then he had me to spiral and walk, it turn away. Wow. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like he literally, if I had a hundred words, he just crossed out 70 of them. You know, I'm like, but again, he taught me a lot of things. Like he's like, well, you're saying the same thing in this verse as you're saying in here. So it's, you know, there was just, I don't know, there's a, a lot of little details of micromanaging a song to make it what it becomes, you know, and that's something that you learn, picking out guitar parts for solos and having George play harmonies and me singing a part over and over and thinking like, wow, that part was really good. And he's like, you're totally flat or you're sharp or that sounds horrible. Redo it. You know, and me singing the same line for the 30th time. <laughs> And then I'm going, okay, I like that take. And I'm thinking, what's different about that take than the previous 29? But again, I'm not a producer at that point. I'm not a songwriter. I don't have a great year. I'm, I'm 24. He's some older keyboard guy, which at that point, I don't know, Howard was probably like 35 or something. But he, he clearly made us excel in the areas that we needed to. And the way the record came together, I think, was, was great. But it was just it was an interesting time. You know, being signed to a record deal, it's it's not like somebody showed up at my house with 40 strippers in a limo and said, here's your record contract. Like <laughs> my drummer called me, called my boss at the moving company and said, where's Stevie? I got to meet him because I have to have him sign something. I got a FedEx today. Mm -hmm. So Michael came to a job that I was working on a moving truck. And if if you guys watched like the early home videos, you'll see Michael shows up with a video camera and I'm moving somebody's apartment. Like I'm in the back of a truck with a weight belt on and sweatpants and dirty gloves. And Michael comes up and he's filming. He's like, Hey, are you ready to sign your record contract? And I'm like, okay. You know, so I'm like sitting in the back of a moving truck in Hollywood on a bundle of dirty moving blankets and boxes, signing a record contract. And then it was done. He's filming. He goes, okay, go back to work. And I was like, okay, bye. You know, so I signed this piece of paper, you know, this contract, wow. Michael left, and I went back to lifting couches. It's so glamorous. It is. But, yeah, exactly. But, you know, most people would think that, you know, you do that when it's like the press conferences of like, you know, super famous people signing contracts with big deals. And there's like a press conference with, you know, hundreds of paparazzis there and that's just not the way it is at least not for a hair band that's getting their first record deal you know how much of the the material that's on the record how much of that was already worked out when you went in to record it what i started to say earlier there was we we came up with three lists howard asked us to play a hymn what we thought our best 10 songs were so there was like 10 songs then it was a second list of 10 and then there was an idea list like songs that we had started to work on that were just ideas now at one point, Todd and George had written pretty much the majority of the music for the songs, um, with the exception of So Many Seasons and I Hate Kissing Goodbye, which were more my songs, mm -hmm. uh, musically and lyrics and melodies and whatever. But I remember there was an idea that they kept playing, and there was no, there was no title or anything for it, but I kept calling it the Dokken idea. And it's because of the way the guitar started out. And the song actually became Rock a Pit Bridge, which is the first song on the record. There's that little kind of 
faint little guitar part where he's kind of like picking with his fingers. It's almost kind of like a George, George Lynch kind of riff. Mm -hmm. So I kept calling it the Dokken idea. Um, and that's all it was, was just that, you know, an idea that was on the third list on the wall, but it ended up becoming a full song and not only just the full song, but the, the, you know, the opening track, the lead track of the record, which was called Rucka Pit Bridge. And people ask me now, what does Rucka Pit Bridge Mm -hmm. mean? Rucka Pit Bridge is just kind of a fictitious thing that I made up in my head based on a previous or a former girlfriend's childhood fairy tale. Like she used to tell me about this fairy tale that she had read about when she was a kid and it was called like the cherry Perry rucka pit or something like that. Mm-hmm. And at one point when they were playing this idea in the rehearsal room, they're form, you know, formulating the song and arranging it. I'm sitting there with a pen and paper and singing. So then the idea was to write this song about this bridge and it's where a guy and you know a girl takes a girl down to this bridge you know you think of it as in the park or in some forest and he's going to go down there and make out with her or take her pants off or whatever you know the song is about <laughs> taking a girl somewhere and fooling around with her by the rucka pit bridge gotcha. but that song was really just a docking idea mm-hmm. george's guitar riff and todd arranged it and little by little the song came together so and and that was not on the first list or the second list like the first list would have probably been like i'm guessing good guys were black all new generation forever yours i'm guessing the second list was so many seasons uh ain't worth a dime lonely lucy but there was other songs that we had worked up that we really liked, like Put Out or Get Out, which was a, yeah. a favorite that we played in the clubs that didn't make the record. Uh, what Comes Around Goes Around. There was actually a song called that, right. which didn't make the record, but oddly we called the record that. We used to play often uh, called Money Talks, which actually we played on pretty much the entire What Comes Around Goes Around tour, but it didn't make the record. But we played that song live on I'd say probably almost every show. So, you know, there was a handful of songs that we we probably played What Comes Around Goes Around uh, at some of the shows as well, but it it was never recorded, even though that was used as the title of the record, you know? Right. I think I heard the demo version of that song back in the day, too. It's a good song. Was was that like one of the favorites that you guys thought was going to be on? Is that why it got the album title it got? Michael probably chose the record title. Michael was pretty much the businessman of the band. Yeah. He, he was the guy that made those decisions. 
you know, obviously came up with, uh, Michael came up with the idea, I think, to shoot the cover on the carousel, yeah. you know, which kind of went with the title of the record. All right, so then we talked about Rucka Pit Bridge, which is an awesome album opener on there, a lot of kick on the right. song. Um, then it goes to the all-new generation, which is almost kind of a like a precursor to American Hairband a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Well, and what happened with that is that song was originally called Boys Will Be Boys. And if you listen to some old live recordings of us playing live shows, that song used to be called Boys Will Be Boys. And it was a George song. George wrote that music for that track, which I always kind of compared it to like a Kiss song, like Rock and Roll All Night or something. It kind of sounds like a yeah, Kiss song. Totally. But that song, we liked it musically, but we thought the title Boys Will Be Boys was kind of generic. I think there was probably five other songs that were called Boys Will Be Boys at that time, including maybe a Vinnie Vincent song. So we just decided to change it. And then at one point, I came up with the idea to call it the All New Generation. But the original idea for All New Generation was not just music. I was singing about presidents and like famous public figures and people like, I don't know, Richard Nixon, Marilyn Monroe. Like there was a whole bunch of almost kind of like a Billy Joel. We didn't start the yeah. fire, you know. So I had all these different parts of the songs that sang about different things. And then it was Howard that told me, Howard Benson said, why don't you just stick to music, okay? Why are we singing about Abraham Lincoln, okay? <laughs> just do it about music. one who kind of steered me to say, Stevie, you're all over the place. Let's make the all new generation be about music. Break it down into music generations. And I was like, okay. And so uh, time ain't in a bottle and nothing stays the same. Somewhere in the 50s, music made a change. People started pointing when the king began to shake. They called it rock and roll and it was love or hate. Elvis Presley, Richie, Jerry, Little Richard, Buddy, Barry, you know the Beatles had a hard day. I'm not even singing the right melody, but as you hear, I say Elvis Presley, Richard Berry, or Little Richard, Buddy Berry, meaning Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, obviously Little Richard, Elvis Presley. So I'm singing about all the bands from the 50s into the 60s. And then the second verse is the Who, the Doors, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, and Old Van Halen, Aerosmith told you walk this way. And then the third pre-chorus is Cooper Kiss, the Oz and Motley, Poison, Axel, John Bon Jovi, Skid Row is the Youth Gone Wild. And at that point, this is 1990 when that was written and the recording started. So Skid Row was really only about a year and a half old. And they were at that point 
the all new generation of rock. Skid Row was the new band, you know, that everybody was gung ho about. So obviously Howard kind of helped me define, you know, you need to sing this about music generations, not just generations of people. So get out, you know, take out the Marilyn Monroe's and the, the presidents and whoever else I was adding to it that was kind of causing it to go all over the place. Is there a demo out there but, yeah. of that version? Probably some rehearsal demos, but not 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 that anybody has. I mean, I've I've got fucking boxes of shit in my garage with tons of rehearsals. We used to rehearse, we used to record rehearsals a lot. So there's probably some rehearsal version of me singing some wacky lyrics to that song <laughs> that don't make any sense, <laughs> you know. Because yeah, I want to hear the historical version of it yeah. now. <laughs> All right, well, that goes into I Hate Kissing You Goodbye, which, you know, obviously this song got a lot of notoriety back in the day, and, and you were all over MTV for a little bit. Yeah, and that, that song was originally demoed by my first band, Exciter, and it was called Kiss the Girl Goodbye. And so when I was in Tough for the first year or two, we were playing all these different rock songs, but we didn't really have any slow songs or any ballads. And obviously the power ballad was becoming bigger and bigger, I came to the band with two different ballads. One was called Kiss the Girl Goodbye, which I decided to, to, to kind of rearrange it, change it to I Hate Kissing You Goodbye. And then there was another one called When We Were Young. And we used to play both of those. And those were my songs. But by the time Howard got involved, um, we had whittled it down to just doing the one. And there was a songwriter named Todd Neger that was working with a songwriting company, a publishing company, I forget which one, but he was brought in and he listened to us and he zeroed in on that song and said, I want to help you with that song. So Todd Meager, who at one point also wrote some stuff with, I, I want to say he did some stuff with Janie as well, Janie Lane and Pretty Boy Floyd and maybe a couple other people, maybe Night Ranger, but he came in there and really helped me shape the melody and the lyric to that song. remember we played that song at a show at the troubadour in 1990 right when we were getting our deal and we did a, a i want to say it was a birthday party for gina b who was the promoter at the troubadour and her birthday's in may so it would have been may of 90 and janie lane actually in introduced us that night and he came up to me afterwards 
because we we opened our little set with with a with a ballad that song. Wow. And uh, he came up to me. He goes, "Hey man, that's a good tune." Hmm. I remember that sticking out because obviously you know years later it became our you know our most popular song at that point. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, I suppose if anybody's gonna know coming from Janie Lane, he would know a good ballad yep. when he hears it. For sure. So how does it feel to get some success and some notoriety off this song? I mean, MTV programming, you know, is responsible for all that. You know, like at one point, MTV added us into rotation. And then we would get a fax, you know, for anybody that's under 20. They don't (laughs) probably even know what that is. (laughs) We get a fax at our management's office on a Monday and it would say, here's the programming list for this week. So our manager would tell us, okay, today you're going to be on at 3.05 p.m. The video is going to be on at 7.33 p.m. The video is going to be on at 12.48 a.m. Tomorrow it's going to be on at 1.13 p.m. Like they would tell us in advance at what time our video was going to be on MTV. Mm -hmm. So we knew. So then we would like, you know, Pacific Standard Time, we're like, get home, turn on MTV, and we'd be watching it, and there'd be a winger video, and all of a sudden, boom, there we are. Three minutes and 30 seconds later, it's over. You know, a bunch of people would call us. Oh my God, I just saw you guys on MTV. And I'm like, I know I got to go to work right now. I go back in the moving truck, you know, but it would be like, at that point it was exciting, but the excitement, I don't want to say it wore off, but it just became like, okay, that's great. But what next? And, and when I say, when I say that, I, 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 I can give you this as a comparison. You guys probably know some bands. Maybe you even thought yourself, man, I wish I would have went to LA. I wish I would have played the whiskey just once. I wish I could have got signed to a record contract just once. I wish I could have went on a tour bus just once. I wish I could have headlined an arena just once. A lot of people say that, but it's like when you do it once, now you want twice. Sure. Like you play a show and it's like, Oh my God, that was amazing. We walked on stage in front of 4,000 people and they all went fucking nuts for 40 minutes. And now we're in the dressing room. Like, God, I wish we could do that again tomorrow night, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's addicting having your song become number three. You want it to be number two. It's like, if you met some girl that you really liked and you were really attracted to at one point, she has sex with you and you're really into it. You're thinking, I want to fuck her again tomorrow. Like where's her (laughs) fucking phone number right now? So that's what success does. So having success, uh, whether it's be, be seeing yourself on MTV or opening up a magazine at some point, hey, there we are in Hip Raider. There we are in Rip. There we are in Metal Edge. There we are in Circus. You want, now, now you want to be in Spin or Rolling Stone. You want to graduate and go up another level. Or you'd like, I don't want to just be in the magazine. I want to be a centerfold. I want to be on the cover, you know? So it becomes a little addictive that's, that's where you have to kind of manage your, what you want and what you need and what you can get or what you can have. And it's a little bit of a tricky situation, you know? Mm-hmm. It's got to be weird, though, being, you know, your, your videos on MTV, you've got a, rec- a record contract, you've got an album out, but you're still moving furniture. I mean, is part of the motivation's got to be, get me the hell out of this moving truck, right? Uh, no, it, it really didn't bother me. I mean, because it's... I never had an entitled personality. At least I don't think I do. Let me, let me sidebar. That's Sebastian Bach. You know, there's a motherfucker who's entitled and probably thought 
he deserved and 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 needed everything he got when he was 19 and he you know was was kind of a, a nightmare to deal with at that point but i was like hey if i'm at the working company right if i'm at the moving company right now for the next couple of weeks like i would be working there knowing hey we're I tell my boss, hey, we're going on tour on September 1st, so I'm going to be gone for two months. Okay, cool. Well, tomorrow I'll see you at 7 a.m., you know? Mm-hmm. No problem. I'd go to work. I'd move. I'd make my money, make some tips, go home, hang out with my friends, screw my girlfriend, whatever. Hey, we got to get some rehearsals under our belt, getting our shirts made, getting our stuff ready for the tour, who's going to be our guitar tech, getting all that organized. And in the meanwhile, I worked a job, Right on. you know? A lot of us. I mean, and here's it's it's not just Stevie Rochelle that work jobs. The guys in Wildside work jobs. The guys in King of the Hill work jobs. The guys in Kick Tracy work jobs. Not everybody just said, "Hey, I'm 18. I've got long hair. I'm a singer. Fuck everybody. Suck my dick. I'm a fucking rock star." Like, not everybody acts like that. Is there some people that act like that? Absolutely. But a lot of us didn't. You know, a lot of the guys that were in these bands. You know, hey, I'm I'm a rock star on Saturday night, but a lot of those guys worked in uh, you know other jobs, phone sales, you know, moving companies. Probably fuck. There was probably some of those guys that fucking worked in porn. You know, I mean, everybody has to make it happen. You know, or earn your keep, pay your rent. But just because Gene Simmons took a photo with you, or came and saw your band, or a record label says, "Hey, we're going to sign you." There's a lot of guys that would think the second they did a showcase that they can tell everybody to fuck off because it's only a matter of time before I'm a superstar mm. and I can buy and sell all of you. And there's, I'm telling you, there's, there's a lot that probably thought that way. And there's probably people that still think that way that are young and coming up in, in entertainment, but it don't happen like that, you know? Wow. What a lesson we're getting today. Yeah, so, so moving on to Lonely Lucy. Uh, <laughs> what are your memories of, of putting this song together? Here, here, here's two memories. One, that's a Todd Chase on song, mm-hmm. that riff. And I remember when I was writing some lyrics for it, we shared a rehearsal space with Young Guns before they were called Wildside, friends of ours. Oh, yeah. And I remember they had a song called Hang On Lucy. Before I heard the song, I saw it on a set list at the rehearsal studio. I stole the name Lucy <laughs> and, then, and then wrote this song called Lonely Lucy about, uh, you know, over Todd's track. But that's where I got the idea for the, 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 the name Lucy. It was, it was a Young Guns Wild Side song on a set list in a rehearsal studio. And I started writing this song about this this chick who ended up being lonely Lucy. Chemicals for the brain Too bad, so sad The girl 
guys from Wildside to this day not know that? You know what? I, I think I might have said it one time before, but okay. I'm friends with all of them, so I'm sure Drew, if he's listening to this, will be laughing his head off. <laughs> so there's no lawsuit forthcoming or anything like that? I, I doubt it. I mean, Hang on Lucy was a bigger hit than Lonely Lucy anyway, so I think oh. they got us there. Fair right enough. All right, that brings us up to Ain't Worth a Dime. This has got to be one of the most fun songs you ever get to play live. Yeah, you know, we don't play it that much live anymore. We used to all the time. That's the Todd, that's the Todd Chase song. Todd, Todd's the riff master. Todd writes the stuff that's a lot more riffy. Yeah. Lonely Lucy, Ain't Worth a Dime. George is more of a bar chord guy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's not right. He, he, he plays riffs as well, but like Only Generation, Good Guys Were Black, those are George's songs. Ruckapit Bridge is more of a, I think, a George or a Todd riff. I'm not sure. Maybe George. But um, Ain't Worth a Dime is another Todd song. Really busy, busy guitars and bass. And um, we demoed this with Warren Croyle, who produced it. And we demoed it, recorded it at Sunset Sound Factory, and we mixed it at Amigo in North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can say that when we mixed that song in North Hollywood, I found out years later that that's the same, the same council that Metallica recorded and mixed Master of Puppets on. Wow. Wow. That's pretty cool. But, you know, by the time Howard picked it up and recorded it, 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 you know, obviously was a B-side at this point. We're, what, six, seven songs deep on the record. And it's a heavier song. And I could tell you that if you listen to it, I didn't know this till years later, but it sounds, that opening riff sounds a lot like Scratch My Back by Rock's Gang. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, I'd have to listen. So to if it. you listen, especially the demo version of I, uh, another, uh, Ain't Worth the Dime. at one point was listening to Rock's Gang nonstop, so I think he might have lifted part of the riff from them. <laughs> or <laughs> maybe subconsciously or something. We're revealing that we've stolen our songs from every other 80s band. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm, I'm trying to keep you out of court, personally. Right, yeah, no, this is truly <laughs> Albums Unleashed, yo. What else have you stolen for this album? <laughs> Alright, that brings us... If you to- listen to Scratch My Back at the beginning, the, uh-huh. the, the initial like chords... It sounds like what A Worth the Dime was in the beginning. Okay. Well, that's an awesome riff, man. I love that song nonetheless. Um, okay, that brings us up to a song. This one's really cool, man. In a, in a time where, like, the cheesy ballads are really king, this is a ballad that's got some sort of deeper stuff going on to it, and it's a song called So Many Seasons. Yeah, that's, that's one of my songs, and I wrote it about my brother and my father, both who had passed away. And um, the song is kind of up-tempo and a little poppy and almost at some points kind of sounds kind of happy singing. 
it's not meant to be a sad song, but it's about, you know, it's about my brother and my father. So the song is definitely a little bit more, you know, it's, it's definitely a pop song. Not everybody knows the story, but if you listen to the words, and there was a solo version I released of it on my first solo album years after the fact. It was all like piano and strings, and it's very slow, and it's a, it's a, it's a little bit more heartfelt there because you can hear that it's not, you know, this up-tempo kind of upbeat tambourine-shaken pop song. And I can tell you that the, the lyrics for so many seasons were written at a laundromat on Sherman Way in North Hollywood, California, as I sat on a washer while my clothes were in the dryer. And I was my ex-girlfriend, well, my girlfriend at the time was with me. So those those lyrics were written at a laundromat. Wow. Inspiration strikes at, any, yeah. at odd times. Sure. Yeah. All right. I guess that brings us up to track number seven, Forever Yours. Or as I like to call it, the intro to uh, Inappropriate Earl's podcast. Yeah, exactly. Earl uh, loves this song. Shout out to Inappropriate Earl and Earl Skakel. One of the oldest tough songs in the catalog uh they originally demoed this with jimmy actually that's wrong well it is true but previous to jimmy they demoed this song with terry fox which was their singer pre-jimmy uh pre-jim gillette that is so forever yours was demoed like multiple times and by the time i was in the band we ended up recording it on uh in the warren croyle sessions which were in early 89 uh, recorded at Sunset Sound Factory and mixed at Amigo with Ain't Worth a Dime. Forever Yours, we kept the hook, the chorus, but I decided I wanted to rewrite the lyric for the verse and the pre-chorus and all that, so we kind of rearranged it and rewrote it. And as much as certain people like the song, I don't even know why, at the end of the day, 
most of us didn't like the song. And I'll bet you on the What Comes Around Goes Around tour, we probably didn't play it more than five times. And we played probably 100 shows. So it, it ended up being a song that I, I really wish we would have recorded something else. But um, some people like it, some people don't. At this point, we were all going in a little bit of a heavier direction. And for some reason, it's one of the songs that made the top, you know, the top list of tracks that we recorded. But I think we kind of, if there was anything we, we not that we re- regretted, but we never played it. We would never play it live again. I don't know. It's just, just kind of goofy. I think when you listen and to it, back. It, it, you can tell it came from a different version of the group because it did. Yeah. It does kind of stick out like a, it, not like a sore thumb because I think it's a good song, but it 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 has a different vibe to it than the other songs do. Right. Well, you got to include a song like that, you know, because it's at that time it's always the oddball song that nobody likes mm-hmm. that becomes the number one hit single. Right. Well, then after that, um, track nine, spit like this. This is my favorite song on the record. I think the the riff on this song is great. I think this is. Uh, well, what's the story behind how this one I think came? You out? missed wake me up. Oh, I missed wake me up. I was gonna say. Okay. I was gonna say you missed a song. I did. Well, let's, um, let's talk about wake me up then. Well. You know, the, the thing about Wake Me Up that's kind of weird is that this was not in the original set of songs to record. We recorded that one separately at a separate studio late in, this, in the recording session. And for the record, these record this, this recording session started on December 26, 1990, uh-huh. the day after Christmas. So it was kind of a Christmas gift for us that we started tracking the basic tracks, drums and bass at track record in North Hollywood on Vineland Avenue between Magnolia and Lancashire for anybody that's local. So we recorded the basic tracks for, I want to say it was either five days or 10 days. I want to say it was five days. So they tracked all these songs, but not wake me up. And then what happened is Andy Setcher was the editor for hit Prater magazine. And he was also one of the four partners in titanium records who was our subsidiary label that we were signed to through Atlantic Records. Okay. You guys remember that name, Andy Setcher? Sure. Yeah, it sounds yeah. familiar for sure. From Hit Parader. Okay. Yeah, he, he was he was yeah, he was the Jerry Miller of of of, of Metal Edge, you know, in some kind of term that people might be more familiar with what right. her position was. He was the guy that wrote most of and edited Hit Parader magazine. And because he signed us, he obviously was in touch with a lot of rock stars. And going previous to this, uh, previous to us even getting signed, there was times that me and Michael went to the newsstands in like 1988 and 89, and we're opening up rock magazines, because at that point there was like Circus, Metalix, Faces, Powerline, fucking, I mean, just tons of magazines, Blast, you know, all these rock rags, and we'd be opening them and all of a sudden be like, holy shit, there's a pinup of us in Hit Parader, you know? Right. And that happened like multiple times. And there was pinups of me and all these hit parader offshoots, like, you know, they called it concert shots or hot shots. We came to learn later on that Andy Setcher wanted to sign us for a few years. And he, he was on the verge of signing us more than once. And that was also part of the reason why he started shoving our photos in all the magazines, because he was the editor and had the ability to go, this guy's the next David Lee Roth or this band's the next Motley Crue. Let's put this guy's picture, these bands. And, and so he, he was giving us press for years mm-hmm. and we were always getting all these pinups in these magazines. 
including a lot, a ton in hip parade, and it was because of Andy. So obviously he's thinking, I'm going to help sell some records before we get there, but let's start turning the, you know, turning these photos out of these guys. But Andy was doing an interview with Brett Michaels. And at one point he told Brett, we signed tough. They're in the studio. They're finishing the record. And then Brett said something like, well, Hey, if the guys ever wanted a song or contribution, I'd love to submit something. And of course we were a known band at this time and we were a up and comer. And it's my opinion but I think that Brett probably thought, well, hey, Bon Jovi got involved with those Skid Row guys, yeah. Yeah. got involved with their publishing, took them on tour. They sold a lot of records. Richie and John made a lot of money off that. Skid Row became a huge band. So I think that maybe Brett was thinking, well, hey, if this tough band is on Atlantic, they're going to get a push. Maybe we could somehow get involved. Maybe I can get a song on their record. So if they go and sell a few million records and I can make a few percent on a royalty, it could be money. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I believe happened. So then Brett says, I'd love to submit a song. So Andy says, okay, let's look into that. So then Andy contacts our management, Brian Kushner from Power Star, who also managed Britney Fox, mm -hmm. for those keeping track, Earl Skakel, huge <laughs> fan of Britney Fox. Yes, he is. Um, he loves Britney Fox. Yep. So they contact management and say, Brett Michaels would like to submit a song to Tuff to possibly record for this record. We're already almost done recording, but our manager goes, this is a good opportunity to get in cahoots with Poison. Sure. Maybe you guys become buddies. If Brett wants to give us a song, let's check it out. Could be a good idea. And of course, the label and Howard and everybody agreed, hey, you know, how could this hurt? I mean, at this point, right. Poison's one of the biggest bands in pop rock, you know, no and the singer wants to submit a song to us. So we're like, of course we want it. <laughs> Send it over. Right. So then we get this tape, which I still have to this day, a demo of the song called Wake Me Up that was supposedly written or co-written by Brett Michaels. Mm -hmm. Now, we listened to it, and the first thing all of us said is, that ain't Brett Michaels singing that, and this doesn't sound like Brett Michaels wrote it. That's mm -hmm. just what we thought, uh -huh. you know, because it's not two or three power chord. You know, it's not every rose. It's not I Won't Forget You. It's just it's not as simple as those. It's uh -huh. a little bit more intricate with some weird minor note chords and stuff like that. So we thought, well, this definitely isn't Brett singing it. It doesn't sound like something he would or could write. But needless to say, we recorded it anyways. And then I, I wanted to adjust some of the melody. So at one point I had to call Brett at a hotel while he was on tour mm -hmm. and I wanted to give him, you know, the idea of what I was doing. So I'm calling Brett and using his code name to get him on the phone, which I had to call this hotel and ask for this certain room number. And his name was Jack Cousy, as in Jacuzzi. <laughs> I swear to God. Wow. I swear to God. So now I'm on the phone with Brett and I'm strumming this song and singing in the phone my new idea for the melody. And I thought, well, this is kind of weird that I'm calling him and doing this and trying to tell him that I want to change his song, but it's business. You know, we got to get it approved. He's like, oh, that's great, dude. Killer. Awesome. Can't wait. Let's make it happen. So we end up recording the song. And then when the record is released, there was an article in a local magazine out here called Music Connection that the singer for a band called Soul Kitchen was filing a lawsuit because Wake Me Up was his song. Oh, no. <laughs> and he wanted to know how we got it and why it's crediting Brett Michaels because it's his song. Dang. So then it turns out that the singer from Soul Kitchen 
had started some kind of a legal process against Tough or Atlantic Records and Brett Michaels and the publisher saying, this is not Brett Michaels' song, this is my song. And um, from what I remember, it was all squashed relatively quickly that Brett was involved with this guy and did do some co-writes with this guy. But I think this guy was trying to get involved to get his songs placed. And at one point, Brett used that song and placed it with us. But somehow the wires got crossed and it got forgotten that some other guy was involved. People to this day that still think, and Brett, you wrote up, you worked on a Brett Michaels song. It wasn't Brett's song. It was actually the singer from Soul Kitchen song that Brett was kind of, I guess the term would be middlemanning, you right. know? Yeah. So. Are you using air quotes when you say that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I suppose it's funny, too. You're calling him at the hotel and he's probably thinking, do what you want to it. I don't care. It's not really right. my song. Yeah, I could give a shit. It's not even my song. <laughs> I just want the money. Do what you want with it. Oh, right, man. right, right. <laughs> so funny. that's some of the story on that. All right. So as I was saying before, um, Spit Like This, that, that's my favorite song on the record. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, That's the Todd Chase song.
great riff. That, yeah, he, that dude can write some riffs. Yeah, it's, it's it's, it's, it seems yep. like you know a lot of my fa- my favorite songs because this is a real kind of a almost half half album. You know, where some of it's really hard and heavy, and the other stuff's kind of a little more easy to 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 take. But these heavy ass songs on this album are kick ass. Right. Well, there's three writers. So Many Seasons and I Kissing Goodbye, which are both very elementary songs. Mm-hmm. I mean, So Many Seasons is like D-A-C, D-A-G, you know, that's that's my song. Kissing You Goodbye, oddly, same chords, D-A-C, D-A-C-G. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so those are my two songs. George's, as I said earlier, were a little bit more of the Judas Priest-esque kind of riffs. Yeah. The, the, the good guys were black, all new generation. Chugga yeah. um, chugga. That's stuff. George's. Chase's, yeah, exactly, the chugging. Chase's are the ones that are more busy. Uh, Ain't Worth a Dime, Spit Like This, Lonely Lucy, with the riffs going all over the place, that's Chase. Yeah, so, yeah. and, you know, he's obviously back in the band now for almost 10 years. That's cool. Chase's, uh, he, he's also, aside from being obviously a main writer on those, on those songs, Todd has always been the musical director of the band, which for anybody that doesn't really know what that means, that's usually the guy at rehearsal that takes control of the room and says, no, 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 let's put this here and do like, there's usually one guy that's that guy in the band. That's Todd. So he did more of the arranging of the songs. Even if I or George had come in with a riff, Todd would be the one to arrange it. Verse, chorus, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, bridge, is it going eight bars or 16? What's the timing? What's the drum pattern? Mm-hmm. That's Chase. And he's also the guy, which a lot of people that have seen us now in the last six or eight years live go, wow, I can't believe how fucking great your vocals sound. Are you guys running backing tracks? Or they'd say they can't believe that, you know, how much Todd's voice is a part of the tough vocal, yeah. which it's not as much prevalent on the religious fix record because he had already quit the band, but on that record and on all those live recordings from the, the classic era, Todd's not a lead singer, even though he's been a lead singer in other bands, he's got a very strong voice and his voice complements mine very good that he does a lot of doubling at times. And definitely he's the main chorus singer and gang vocal and, yeah, man, you know? he adds a lot to all this. It's a good, it's a good variety of with with the different writing styles mm-hmm. on there because it's definitely not an album where it's it's not a one trick pony album. Right. You've got a lot a good mix right. of things. Right. And then uh, you close it out with "Good Guys Wear Black." Well, "Good Guys Wear Black." I'll tell you how that song came to be. We were living in an apartment somewhere in like the valley. We always lived in the valley: Van Nuys, North Hollywood, Sherman Oaks, Reseda. We always lived in some kind of and for anybody that lives in the area, they know what they, that means. But the valley is, you know, adjacent to Hollywood. It's surrounded by mountains. It's usually 10 or 15 degrees hotter. If it's 85 or 90 in Hollywood or L.A., then it means it's 100 in the valley. And um, anybody that lives by the beach, the surfers and more artsy-fartsy people, they think the people in the valley are fucking nerds. And get out of here. You're from the valley, bro. You know. So I've always lived in the Valley. I like the Valley. But um, we're at a, one of our apartments one day, and George is in his bedroom with his practice amp on, and he's just riffing away. And he's jamming in the, in the hallway, you know, in his bedroom, and the hallway door is open, and his guitar is just wailing. And all of a sudden, I hear this killer riff. 
I'm in, I don't know, in my room or in the kitchen, the other end of the apartment. I run back into the room. I go, dude, what was that riff you just played? He's like, what riff, bro? As he's hitting the bong because George was a pothead. <laughs> and I'm like, that, that thing you just played. And so now he starts going back and playing different parts of different songs in riffs that he was jamming. Like, no, 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 not that. No, not that. Not that. That right there. What is that? He's like, I don't know. I'm just jamming. We got to make that into a song. brings that riff to rehearsal him and George, him and Todd work up the song and I want to say I think Michael might have come up with the title the guys were black Michael's a little bit of a Harley guy the drummer yeah he still has a Harley to this day so he says like let's call it good guys were black so now I'm throwing that lyric around and we're getting ready to demo with Warren Croyle. I mentioned his name before. Warren Croyle produced our second set of demos in, in early 1989, which was the Ain't Worth a Dime song and the Forever Yours and Sinner Street. Yeah. And that was what we recorded again at Sunset Sound Factory and mixed at Amigo. But we were working on the lyrics for Good Guys Were Black. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were in the rehearsal room and Warren had some ideas for it as well. And he pulled me aside. He said, come on, come on, let's go out in the hallway and work on this. So we're out in the hallway. And I said, I was singing the lyric. He goes, what is that one line you're singing? I said, the smoke clears all around a cigarette. He's hanging down. Kind of like a Clint Eastwood scene from a movie. Like he walks in the bar, right. you know, and he's got a cigarette in his mouth. And he's kind of looking around the room. And he goes, no, not a cigarette a Chesterfield, you know? <laughs> and I remembered that as a kid that my stepdad used to smoke Chesterfield cigars and they'd yeah. come in that cigar box, right? Yeah. Put hair on your chest. So it, it, and a Chesterfield is like an old, cool cigarette from like, what, the 50s or something. Yeah. So he's like, no, not a cigarette. It's got to be a Chesterfield hanging down. He comes and goes without a sound. And I was like, 
yeah. So now, you know, we're out there fucking in the hallway writing this lyric to the song that we think is going to be the next fucking Led Zeppelin, you know. Yeah. But uh, kind of small little detail, but kind of cool to That's think cool. back and look back at when we did that. Again, if you if you listen to those words and you picture Clint Eastwood walking into a bar with a cigarette in his mouth with smoke coming out and kind of looks looks around, nobody says anything, and he turns out and walks back out of the bar. You know, he comes and goes without a sound. That's kind of what that song is meant to be about. This good guy, you know, all dressed in black, that's basically coming in a bar to fucking set some people straight if they dare fuck with him, you know? Right. That's what Good Guys Were Black is about. It would have made a cool video. Yeah, kind of like Wanted Man by Rat yeah, or something. I can totally see it. All right, here's something I got to ask you about. When I was a kid, okay. a teenager, I guess, we rented a video from the Quick Trip, and it was called Thunder. Heavy Metal, Thunder and Mud. Thunder and Mud. I try to tell people about this video. Nobody knows what the hell I'm talking about. Please tell us about Thunder and Mud. Well, it's you know, there's, there's clips of it on YouTube. Are there? Awesome. I didn't. Yeah. Not, not just if, well, first of all, if you search tough, good guys were black, our performance from there is on there, but there's like two or three clips that are like us backstage with the mud wrestler. And we're like with Brent and like, uh, the drummer from, from young guns, you know, wild side or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then there's some pictures or some clips of like Bill Gazzari and Nader from London and, Pawn Mastery, Jessica Hahn. Yeah, there's a couple of videos. There's a couple of clips on YouTube. That's cool. That was one of the greatest things I ever seen. It was like a battle of the bands and a mud wrestling tournament all rolled yeah. into one. It was horrific. But, know you know, hard, but what's funny it. is, let me explain to you how that came about. Yeah. So Penelope Spiris was the producer and director of Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years, correct? Right. Yes. You guys remember what that was. Yeah. Everybody knows what that is. Yeah, of course. So, I was only in the band for a short time, and at one point we were on the Sunset Strip, and Penelope and some video crew comes up to us and says, we want to interview you, we want you to be in our documentary. So we were in it. And then at one point, I'm backtracking a little bit here before we get to the heavy metal thunder and mud. Penelope says, okay, we're going to interview you. You're the hottest new band on the Strip. We want tough. So we're in decline of Western civilization. Now there's going to be a premiere of it at the Cinerama Dome. That's the dome on Sunset. It's like a real famous theater that's been there forever. And we go to the, to the red carpet night. So we're sitting in there. We watch the whole thing. And of course, Tuff's in probably, I don't know, five little clips, mainly me and Michael. We're in like five or six clips of decline. And during the movie, Penelope's sitting with Gene Simmons. And so during the movie... There was more than a few clips where we come up on the screen and Jean says, Penelope, who's this? She goes, that's Stevie Rochelle. He's with a band called Tough. And Jean looks at her and goes, that kid's going to be a star. And then I guess the movie plays. And then another clip comes up with me and Jean says, Penelope, what's that kid's name again? Who is it? She's like, that's Stevie from Tough. They're a brand new band on the strip, blah, 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 though. Gene's like, okay, Stevie, tough. Okay, I'm going to remember that. So after the, after the premiere lets out, we're walking around. There's all kinds of famous people there, all kinds of rock stars. And uh, Penelope comes up to me. She's like, Stevie, Gene Simmons kept asking about you. Every time you came on the screen, he's like, who is that kid? He's going to be a star. And so I'm like, oh, really? Oh, great. Awesome. She goes, no, you don't understand, Stevie. He's a very powerful man in this industry. Gene is a very important person. 
and he, he, he kept on asking about you and he thinks that, you know, you have a promising future. And, and I'm like, okay, great. Like, not that I'm blowing it off, but I'm just in my element at this point, you know? So then Penelope likes our band. And at one point she contacts us down the road and says, Hey, we're filming another thing. We want you guys to be involved. It's called heavy metal thunder and mud. It's going to be rock bands and mud wrestlers. And Jessica Hahn's going to host it with Bill Gazzari and Han Mastery, the leather nun from KNAC. And we're going to film it with this backstage and the mud wrestler represents each band. And of course we ended up doing it. And as you guys know, fucking really goofy. Yeah. I mean, really hokey. I mean, decline was kind of hokey too, but it's still, you know, it, it, at this point, it's kind of a cult classic that Absolutely. people like. Sure. But the heavy metal thunder and mud was really hokey. Right. It was like a pay-per-view. Gotcha. So then, now we get signed to our Atlantic deal. And Penelope and her people or whoever reach out to us and says, Penelope Spheris wants to talk to you guys. She's doing another movie. She wants you guys involved. And we're like, oh, fuck. That's right. We did that last thing. It was fucking totally gay with the fucking, you know, the goofy mud wrestlers. And it was just so cheesy. So we're like... Nah, we're signed to Atlantic Records uh, now. We're not interested. So we kind of blew her off. <laughs> and then six months later, her, her, her movie comes out, the one that she asked us to be in and to like submit a song for the soundtrack. And it was Wayne's World. <laughs> Damn. Oh, boy. Oh, so man. we kind of fucked up on that one. So oh, I guess. It would have been awesome if Tough would have had a song on the Wayne's World soundtrack. Yeah, well, dude, it would have been huge. I mean, that movie was massive, and the fucking soundtrack probably was multi-plat. I mean, you know, the, we we did a couple things with her, and they were both kind of hokey. But, you know, not, not that we were too good, but we were thinking, hey, we're on Atlantic Records now, and we're trying to move forward. And right. the last thing was really goofy, so let's just not do it. It's too bad they're like, yeah, it's going to be this movie. This movie with these two guys in a basement and they have a radio show and they're going to be famous and they're in Illinois and we're like, oh yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> wow. Hey, be careful what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No. Sounds familiar. Right. right. <laughs> Interesting though how all oh, that man. kind of. But I'm happened. telling you, as a as a young teenager, that shit was awesome. Yeah, so some interesting memories, you know. Uh, well, I mean, is there is there anything on the album that, in in hindsight, you think maybe should have been a single that wasn't? Well, here's a little info for you. The original single was supposed to be All New Generation. Mm -hmm. And what happened is we played a thing in Phoenix, an outdoor festival show with like Badlands, Bang Tango, South Gang, I don't know, a whole bunch of, whole bunch of different bands. It was like a two or three day festival at this outdoor baseball stadium called Compadre Stadium. And we were going to release All New Generation as our first single. So we went there and we played that show in the early spring of 91, the record came out in May of 91. So they sent a film crew and they filmed us. If you go on YouTube and search tough all new generation, there's a video on YouTube for the all new generation. That's footage that was shot by Atlantic. And I believe her name was Cindy Kiefer and renegade films, but it was never edited and never used mm -hmm. at one point. Fast forward several years later, after the Atlantic deal went away and all that, I got the footage and then my friend, Sean Card, who actually is the co-creator of Metal Sludge, he, he edited the All New Generation video together for us. So what was going to happen is the All New Generation was going to be the, the video single. But K-Bear in Salt Lake 
and the Blaze and Chicago sister radio stations started playing our ballad. And it got a lot of reaction and a lot of phones and became a top request. Mm -hmm. The label came to learn about that. And at the last minute, decided to not release All New Generation. Mm -hmm. So they said, stop the presses. We're not going to release All New Generation. We're going to change it. And the band's going to shoot a video for I Kissing Goodbye. So they shelved all the footage. Then they rushed and we did this video for I Kissing Goodbye, which was a killer video. Yeah. They put it out, and when they released the video, or when they released the single, the first set of singles went to the stores, because this is when they were selling singles. Right, right, yeah. And all the singles had artwork for I Kissing Goodbye, New Power Ballad by Tough, blah, 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 A-side, B-side, whatever. But Atlantic fucked up, and all the cassette singles where the I Kissing Goodbye song was supposed to be on, they put All New Generation on it. Oh, wow. So the artwork for the singles was for Kissing You Goodbye and the B-side, which is, I don't even know, maybe Wake Me Up or So Many Seasons or something. Yeah. But the the main song that was being advertised was not on the single. So then they had to recall all the singles. Jesus. And obviously, then the video came out and the video did get its fair share of airplay on MTV. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the year, they decided they wanted to do another video and it was going to be for so many seasons. And then we got a treatment as to what the video would look like. Uh And Todd at the time, the band was pretty strained more so between myself and Todd. Todd was furious that Atlantic records wanted to do a single video for um, so many seasons because they had already done I kissing goodbye, which was technically my song. And this is when it became like the, but you already did one of Stevie's songs. I want to do my song. No, it was kind of fight. Right. <laughs> and so there was a whole bunch of arguments going on within the band and Boy, you know, you can what the single should be and all that. Kind of see his side of it, though, because, I mean, we've talked about this a bunch of times on the show where you almost got to lead with that heavy song as the first single. So Absolutely. That way, that way, you know, the guys know that you're cool. So then when you hit them with the right. ballad, you're not blindsiding nobody. You know, so right. I can see how, you know, you'd like, yeah, we don't want to be known as just a ballad band. You want to put it out there that we, the dudes can dig us too, you know? I totally agree. Yeah. But this was Atlantic Records 27 years ago mm-hmm. doing what they wanted to do, you know? Right. Wow. Well, I think. I that, mean, mm-hmm. here's, here's another example of the label and how things work. I remember our management sent us a sample of a poster and he said, this is going to be your poster for the record. It was, a, it was an older photo that we didn't like. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we don't like that photo. We want a different photo. So we submitted all these other photos, and the label rejected them all. So at one point, we said, we don't want that photo. And then at one point, the art department or the label basically said, do you want a poster, yes or no? If you want a poster, this is your poster. If you don't like this photo, then we're not doing the poster. End of story. Right. You have no choice. Damn. Do you want the poster, yes or no? So we, t- we said yes, and we let them make the poster, which we didn't like the photo. But again, it was their $150,000 or whatever that's on the line. So when they say, like, we're not using that photo, we don't like it, I get it now. When they say, we're making a single, we're going to do a video and spend fifty grand, we are not going to do it for Ain't Worth a Dime. We're going to do it for so many seasons or Kissing You Goodbye or whatever. You know, it's, it's their money, right. and it's their call, you know? Yeah. Got to play the game. Right. There's something to be said to, for listening to the artist, the one that's creating it. 
but I agree with you guys. I mean, you know, we we thought the same thing. We wanted to have a heavy song first or a, a rock song, but you know, I mean, at one point we get to really only release the ballad, right. and that's all people kind of just thought for the longest time. Okay, these guys are like Nelson, or these guys are just pop ballads, and then they come see us live and hear "Ain't Worth the Dime" and "Lonely Lucy" and "Good Guys Were Black" and spit like this and go, "Holy fuck, what is all this?" Right? Yeah, for sure. Wow. Well, uh, so you know, you mentioned Todd's back in the band and has been for a while. Did you mm-hmm. do you have any contact with the other guys anymore? Talk to Michael pretty well, probably at least once a month. Mm-hmm. He's very successful. He's got a few restaurants, right old New York Coffee and Bagel Deli. He owns three of them: one in Camarillo, one in Newberry Park, and one in Mammoth. So he's been out of the business for twenty years. He he's very successful and all that. When I was mastering tracks for the decadation vinyl like a year ago he came to the studio he, he hung out he's been to some shows you know but he's he's not going to do music in any way just because he's not really interested yeah. you know he's got too many other successful things going on george lives in florida with his family from what i understand i haven't talked to him in probably three or four years none of us have yeah he's kind of out of the mix that way the, the last few times we tried to communicate with him and even involved, say, friendship, it, it went sideways. So it is what it is. We're good. We're good with me and Todd in the band, and right. Michael's very supportive of anything and everything we do, right. you know? Gotcha. Good deal. Well, this is awesome, man. We got a lot of cool insight to not just the making of the album, What Comes Around Goes Around, and the experiences of Stevie Rochelle starting out as a kid in Wisconsin and making his way up to be one right. of the most popular bands on the Strip. We just got to all around look into the weird record industry back in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Very cool, man. We appreciate you taking the time to do this with us. Next time, we got to get together and pick up where we leave off and maybe lead into Fist First and Religious Fix, man. I'd love to hear the story on those albums. Yeah, that'd be all, that'd be all good. Very cool. And for anybody that doesn't know, Stevie's got all kinds of places you can get tough music all the way back this guy's got it he releases stuff that's from the archives you know if you are not already a tough fan and you're just discovering them and you're digging them one thing i can say about stevie rochelle as a tough fan myself i really appreciate that you still continue to release like the old demos and stuff that you know maybe didn't make these albums because there's some really cool demo stuff that you've come out with over the years that i thought man these songs should have been on albums but I appreciate right. that you release that stuff. Yeah, and that's appreciated. I mean, if, if anybody wants, Google us or Google Tough or me, eBay, Amazon, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Stevie Tough, or just Google the name Tough, T-U-F-F. Mm-hmm. We have all our music out there. There's lots of different things available. And we're appreciative and thankful for anybody that supports us, you know, across the board. I hope you're going to edit out some of my blabbering because I'm thinking there's probably some 
stuff in there that doesn't make any sense. I will make it all work. Well, that's this has been fun. That's the stuff I'll send in a press release to Blabbermouth. 